How's everybody doing out there? So kind of a provocative title for the, this, uh, <laughs> this video, this Sunday morning live, um, talking about, uh, what is the real Christianity? And is there a, a baby in the bathwater? So, <laughs> um, I was talking to someone recently and the whole issue of the baby in the bathwater came up and I think this person said, uh, I looked in that bathwater, talking about religion, talking about Christianity specifically, said I looked in that bathwater and that baby was uh, dead and decaying <laughs> or something like that. Basically, there's nothing redeemable. There's nothing worth saving. There's nothing worth keeping from this person's past uh, Christian experience. Because it's all just uh, BS. And to a large degree, um, I can agree. I can agree with some of that. I think uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see where I'm going. But I guess, you know, since deconstructing, since getting out of uh, the type of ministry I was doing before and doing a lot of seeking, a lot of searching, wanting to be true and faithful to myself first and foremost, and just to be really clear, that has been my highest uh, priority, not in a selfish way that doesn't care about other people, not in a way that uh, is going to, you know, justify going out and being a, a jerk and causing harm to people. But from the perspective of I gave up so much of myself to fit into the Christian box. I gave up so much of myself to fit into the pastor box. Um and I gave up so much of myself to uh, other leaders and apostles and elders and and all this conformity to groupthink and all this stuff, which led to a lot of fake and phony me's <laughs> versions of myself that weren't truly authentic to who I was and led to, you know, fake and phony relationships as well. Uh, or relationships, at least, that were completely based on, as long as you agree with me, I will love you. As long as you agree with me, I will accept you. I have some great friends out there that have stayed with me through the various uh, uh, morphing versions of myself that I've gone through the last few years. But my primary thing at this stage of my life was to be authentic, to be true to myself, and that included my quest into truth. So a lot of people, you know, sort of uh, take this position of I'm going to pursue truth for the sake of truth itself. I would have told you 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago that I came into the version of Christianity that I was in because I just wanted the truth. I was just seeking the truth. I didn't care. What it cost me. And then you hear people who leave religion who say, well, I just want the truth. And they end up um, following some other kind of a, a spiritual path that they believe is the truth. Or people and end up deconstructing from religion and they go all the way into atheism and solely into materialism. And they say, I'm doing this because I'm letting the evidence lead me. I'm doing it in a quest for truth. Can we just be honest? The quest for truth is not that simple. <laughs> In fact, people who say that they have the truth or that their quest has definitely led them to truth are more often than not falling into the Dunning-Kruger effect. 
And I can say that because having exposed myself to people who are experts in various different fields, a true expert usually does not speak with absolute certainty or confidence unless they're just trying to be persuasive in a talk or something. But if you really sit down and talk to them, they don't speak with absolute certainty and uh, confidence because they know enough to know what they don't know. So many of us get boastful and prideful about how we've found the truth and this is what we believe and this is how it is. And it's because I was on a quest for truth and I followed the science or I followed the evidence in the, in the scholarship or whatever the case may be. And oftentimes it, we're talking about things that we don't even know what we don't know. And that's not always the case, but that can often be the case. So I want to be very clear. This this isn't about a quest for the truth, per se, because I'm not even sure there is such thing as concrete the truth. This is more or as much. I don't want to say that truth is not important to me. I don't want to give that impression or idea, but. This is more about authenticity to self. Because again, I had to give up so much of that, right? In order to fulfill the roles that I was fulfilling in my past versions of myself in this life. So, so part of this whole quest and journey for me has been sorting out, um, where I came from. Who am I now? What gives my life meaning now? And who am I going forward and where am I going forward? And I do want to have a good, solid foundation for that that people can call truth. But at the end of the day, it's about authenticity for me. It's about knowing myself, knowing how I'm wired, and knowing what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Not where I wanted to start this. I just want to clarify where I'm coming from with some of this. So for me, materialist reductionism, becoming a materialist, becoming a, I'm a science guy all the way. And if science can't demonstrate it and science can't prove it, then I've got nothing to do with it. I'm certainly not a materialist in the sense that I believe that this universe that we live in and these lives that we are living can be reduced down to what is measurable, what is repeatable, and what is observable. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to say that I find that way of thinking absolutely does not work for me at all. <laughs> so even if it's true, I'm going to discount it because it doesn't work for me. I'm not wired that way. I'm not wired with that kind of reductionism. I am wired more for the mystical, for the metaphysical, uh, for the paranormal. That's just the way I'm wired. So back to finding the baby in the bathwater. I cannot look back on my past experiences as a pastor or as a Christian and just discount it all. Or throw it away or say there was nothing good in there or there's nothing redeemable about it. I spent 30 years 
studying the scriptures and I'm not prepared at 51 years old to just throw away 30 years of my life's effort and say there's no value in the Bible or value in the scriptures at all. But at the same time, I notice so much that's harmful. I notice so much that's hurtful, both to myself and to other people and to society and to the world. And yet, I know there were things that were done in our church and in our ministry and stuff that was helpful to people and affirming to people and empowering to people and healing for people. So I don't feel the need anymore to be this absolutist. But so so what I want to do is I want to uh, hit on some things that I hit on last week. <laughs> I don't know why I got off into all that. Um, oh, it, it, it'll become important in a minute. I know. So one of the things I talked about last week was this this phrase that comes out of Colossians chapter one. Around verse 24, uh, Paul, who are, or whoever wrote Colossians, um, but the, the author, the writer, assuming it wasn't changed later, is talking about himself as though he is the Apostle Paul. And he says that he had been given a stewardship of a mystery. I'm going to come back to that. I want you to highlight that idea of mystery. He'd been given a stewardship of a mystery to fulfill the word of God, the word of God. Now, for Paul or the writer of the scriptures here in Colossians, the word of God is not the scriptures or the Bible that you have in your lap because the dude's penning it, right? <laughs> He's writing a letter to uh, churches that is eventually going to become part of your scriptures 300 years after the fact. Most people don't realize that, that the Bible didn't even come into existence until Constantine asks the bishop Eusebius, to give him a copy of their scriptures. And they're like, there's many scriptures. There's many gospels. There's many stories and sayings out there about Jesus. And so this whole thing of your Bible is really messy. So suffice it to say, the Apostle Paul, or whoever, again, whoever's writing the book of Colossians, is not equating the scriptures with the word of God, because, again, they're writing something that's going to be in your scriptures. But he says, I'm fulfilling the word of God through the stewardship of this mystery. And then he says, the word of God that I am proclaiming, the fulfilling of the word of God is this, to preach among the Gentiles what is the glorious riches of this mystery. There's that term again, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he says, him we preach. Who's the him we preach? The him we preach is the Christ in you. Not, and here's the other thing he says, I left this part out. He says, I'm preaching among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which for ages and generations has been kept hidden, but now is being revealed through Jesus Christ. This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what he's saying is, the stewardship of his ministry and the fullness of the word of God that he was preaching is this message that Christ is in you. And he says this has always existed. This has always existed for ages and for generations, but it's been hidden, it's been kept a secret, and now it's being revealed through uh, 
what I'm preaching. Now, guys, that turns evangelical Christianity on its head, Catholic Christianity on its head, Orthodox Christianity on its head, evangelical Christianity on its head. It completely overturns it right there in the Christian scriptures themselves. Because Paul says he's preaching about a Messiah that has nothing to do with a historical person. If if the gospel, the fullness of the word of God that Paul himself believed he was preaching had anything to do with the historical Jesus, then he would have to say that the stewardship of the mystery that he had been given had something to do with a historical person of Jesus. But he says it's about the Christ in you. It's about the Christ in you. Now, if it had anything to do with a historical person, he couldn't say this mystery always existed, that it was present in ages past and present in generations past, but is now just being revealed through what I'm preaching to you. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't be able to say that because, because basically what he's saying is he's saying there's a truth about something, about a Christ principle, that's inside of you, that's hidden inside of you, that has nothing to do with gender, that has nothing to do with race. You don't have to be uh, an Israelite to have this. And it has nothing to do with the time period. If it has nothing to do with the time period, then it has nothing to do with the historical person, <laughs> which means that nothing changed when Jesus showed up on the scene. So I'm going to take the position first. That Jesus is a historical person. That he did live and die on a cross under Pontius Pilate and was raised from the dead or whatever. I'm going to take the position, the orthodox position, that he was second member of the Trinity and God manifested in the flesh. That God came down in human skin in order to reveal himself to us. That, uh, the, the, the incarnation changed something in the creation or the crucifixion and resurrection did something to change us or allow us to be changed. That, that something cosmically powerful happened at the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. If that's the case, then Paul, what is Paul talking about in Colossians chapter one? Because what he's talking about in Colossians chapter 1 is a principle, a truth, a reality that always existed in all time periods, no matter who you were, no matter where you were, this Christ in you that is the hope of your glory. Not not a Christ in the sky, a sky daddy, not a, not a savior other than you or outside of you that you pray to, that you worship, and that you take your your sins to that person, but a reality, an internal reality about who you are as a human being, a principle of divinity and anointing that everyone has that's inside of everyone, a principle of divinity that is divided out and distributed and inside of every human being and the word of God that Paul's preaching or the gospel that he's preaching or the hymn that he's preaching is the revelation of that for the purpose of awakening that and causing that to be fanned into flame within you. And that's what's going to produce glory or results or benefits in your life. (laughs) Nothing to do with historical Jesus. Now, I'm going to read you two quotes from two early church fathers that validate and say the same thing. No less, first off, I'm going to start off with no less than St. Augustine. 
Now, for those who don't know who St. Augustine is, St. Augustine is considered the father of Western theology. Uh, the, yeah, the father, the founder of Western theology. So he's a, he's a big deal. <laughs> and he's writing at the beginning of this thing that became known as Christianity and it became the Christian movement. And Augustine says this. He says, the very thing which is now called the Christian religion, existed among the ancients also, nor was it wanting from the inception of the human race until the coming of Christ in the flesh, at which point the true religion was already in existence, which was already in existence, began to be called Christian. I'm going to say this again. The very thing which is now called the Christian religion existed among the ancients also, nor was it wanting from the inception of the human race until the coming of Christ in the flesh, at which point the true religion, which was already in existence, began to be called Christian. Um, and then I, I'm going to read you a quote from the church historian Eusebius. Um, so if, if Augustine was perhaps the most important figure in uh, documenting and crystallizing early Christian theology, then Eusebius was to Christian history what Augustine was to Christian theology. And here's what Eusebius says. The religion published by Jesus Christ to all nations is neither new nor strange. For though without controversy, we are of late... And the name Christians is indeed new, yet our manner of life and the principles of our religion have not been lately devised by us, but were instituted and observed from the beginning of the world by good men accepted by God from those natural notions implanted in men's minds. So Paul's saying that what he's teaching existed from the beginning of time, existed in the generations past, existed in the ancients. Augustine is saying the same thing at the early development of Christianity. Eusebius is saying the same thing. And there are other quotes and writers that I can show you as well. But you get the point. Here's the point. If it was not something new that they were teaching, if they could look at the cultures around them and say, we're not preaching or teaching anything that's new to the cultures around us, or they could look back at the the ancients and the histories. Now, remember, they had access to libraries and books uh, and things from antiquity going back that were completely lost, completely lost to us. Uh Mostly because of Christians, <laughs> frankly, Christians went in and they destroyed that knowledge. They didn't want that knowledge to be known by people. And you have to ask yourself, hmm, why would the church not want them to know those things? And part of the answer, I think, lies in the fact that what was being taught and released and developed in people. It, here's the thing. if Christianity wasn't new if Jesus wasn't unique and the teachings of Jesus weren't unique, which scholars today know now that they're not, because you can find everything that Jesus taught in um, 
in Jewish commentaries that predate Jesus or in Greek philosophers and Stoic philosophers' statements that predate Jesus. So basically it's just taking the best wisdom of the day and putting it in Jesus' mouth in, in the Gospels. But if if this stuff had been taught, if it if other cultures knew about it, or there was it was other places in history, then uh, Christianity loses its uniqueness. And if Christianity loses its uniqueness, it loses its authority or ability to lord over other people. So here's the interesting thing about Christian history, right? The interesting thing to me about it is there were so many Christianities in the first century. There were so many different gospels and and writings and groups, and yet we only have four that are sanctioned to us as the word of God, and three of those four are virtually the same. There were many, many other Gnostic Christians or Gnostic camps kind of divide them into two groups, basically the, what became the orthodox teachings of the Roman Catholic Church or the Catholic Church, more correctly, and what was known as Gnosticism. Now here's the thing that's really interesting. We can argue the point, was Jesus a historical person? And it's pretty, you know, the evidence is pretty out there for anybody to access on the Internet. And I don't think the evidence is persuasive one way or the other. I don't think we can say with absolute certainty one way or the other about whether a historical Jesus lived. The question, though, is what started the Jesus movement? Where did it come from? Where did it originate? And these writers here, Eusebius and Augustine, Paul himself are saying that it predates the coming of Jesus on the scene. So the other thing I want to point you to, because I think this is really key, is that Paul says He'd been given the stewardship of a mystery and that he was preaching a mystery. And in several places in Paul's writings, he talks about the mysteries of the gospel, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. This was a very precise word, from my understanding, in the Greco-Roman world. And it referred to what are known as the Greco-Roman mystery schools, mystery schools. So mystery schools were set up in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman times, and the belief is that the, the Greeks took it from the Egyptians and that the mystery schools go back to Egypt. And what they would do is they would take people through an initiation process that usually involved things like baptism, that usually involved uh, 
ritual and ceremony to sort of shock the person. Uh, if you ever had anything to do with Freemasonry, um, that kind of initiation. And in almost every case, these mystery schools had myths, stories, stories about their gods that illustrated some truth in a parable or in a metaphor or in a symbolic form. And almost always it involved some form of a dying, rising God that symbolized in the story the internal process that the initiate was being taken through in the mystery schools in order to awaken them to new life. So the idea was, you're dying today, and today you are reborn. You're leaving the darkness, the darkness is being dispelled, and you're coming into the light. These were common ideas in the ancient world and in the Greco-Roman world. And probably, like I said, date back to Egypt. So really, what Paul's doing, I think, is developing, not developing the church like what the church would become, but is doing his own sort of mystery school. Now, if that's the case, then that leaves open the possibility that the stories about Jesus are myths, are dramatic myth. And I don't mean myth in the sense of a fairy tale that we dismiss. I mean a powerful story that illuminates a process or an internal reality and a process that we go through as human beings in order to awaken the Christ within us. Shakespeare. Shakespeare wasn't writing about literal people. Romeo and Juliet, as far as we know, you know, weren't literal individuals, and the idea wasn't I'm going to tell this literal story. Yet the power in the story is that it speaks to all of us, right? It speaks to all of us about... um you know, wanting the object of our affection and yet living in a culture and a society where that's blocked from you because you have to live by and follow society's rules. And so you go through this process of, you know, trying to break free from that so that yourself, your, your love can, can come out. And then at the end of the day, it's like, if I can't, if I have to live in this society, then I'm going to die. I'd rather die than be without my love, right? So not a literal story about literal people and literal events that happened, but a very powerful story that speaks to us and can awaken something that was relatable to us and can awaken something on the inside of us and maybe even help mold and shape us, right, through these vicarious experiences that we get. So what I'm trying to suggest to you is that the story of Christ the story of Jesus, particularly his passion, is is a 
mythological story. It is a story that is supposed to speak to us about processes that we go through, but it's not supposed to be taken literally. So, for example, just do this. Just sit down. We're coming up on the Easter season a little bit. Just sit down and read everything that happens from Thursday to Friday night when Jesus is crucified. From from what we used to celebrate in the Methodist Church, Monday, Thursday, the Last Supper on Thursday night, to uh, crucifixion at, at whatever it was, 3 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. You realize that in, in like a 16-hour time span, in a 16-hour time span, Jesus uh, has dinner with his disciples. He washes their feet. They take a walk uh, several miles up to this mountain to walk through this vineyard. He teaches them in this vineyard. He goes off by himself to pray. He's gone long enough sweating blood while he's praying that his disciples fall asleep. In the meantime, in the middle of the night, Judas is somehow able to go get his money and bring out the soldiers and the soldiers come peter cuts off his ear and jesus heals his ear and then the next thing you know he we've got three trials we've got a trial before caiaphas we've got a trial before herod we've got a trial before uh pontius pilate well we get people up what in the middle of the night to see if they want barabbas or if they want jesus crucified then we have the scourging then we have the whole carrying the cross up to golgotha and then there's still time for him to be crucified and hang on the cross and die all that happens in less than a 24-hour period, most of it in the middle of the night. And everybody's just, oh, yeah, because, you know, everybody has legal matters settled at 2 in the morning. I'm just saying, there's no way to cram all that into one evening because it was never meant to be taken literally or historically. It was uh, a demonstration of spiritual principles and spiritual truths and things that we go through, the demonstration of our humanity, the suffering of our humanity, all the things that we go through, worry and stress, uh, false accusations, friends turning against us, being mocked, um, being victimized by religious and political powers, our friends turning on us and abandoning us, feeling abandoned by God, the suffering and pain and ultimately death of the cross. It's like it's like all the miseries of being in the flesh and being a human being dramatically played out, not meant to be taken literally, as though it happened in a 16-hour time period. <laughs> so here's what I'm trying to say. The the problem, as far as I see it, is that Christianity, the stories in the Bible, were taken literally and taken historically. And what is supposed to be true of you and me was alienated from us and put into the person of Jesus so that we would exalt and worship the person of Jesus in order to empower a religious political machine and system to dominate the masses. But there was another version of Christianity that didn't take it literally. There, there are writings like the Apocryphon of John, for example, a Gnostic writing that was found at the Nag Hammadi Library, where it begins with the sufferings of Jesus and Jesus appears to them in a vision, appears to John in a vision and says, all of this is symbolic. 
All of this is symbolic of a process. So it, it would seem that possibly the majority of Christians were really reinventing certain myths and mystery school teachings and making them accessible to the general public for the purpose of gnosis, for the purpose of self-discovery, for a purpose uh, to realize that within you, and this is what all the sages from the past have taught. If you look at the Hermetica Corpus, which is a body of ancient writings, talks about this. If uh, you read Plato, talks about this. Pythagoras even talks about this. This theme or this idea that you have a divine spark, that you are a fragment of the divine. And you have this divine spark in you that can be raised up and that can be awakened. Now, here, here's the other thing that's really interesting. I, I got a book about this big, uh, where this guy has, who's an expert on myth and the stars. And he takes the Bible stories from both Old Testament and the New Testament and shows you in the sky how the movement of the stars through the seasons tells this story that's in the Bible and how there are similar tellings of similar type stories based on the stars in other cultures with their myths. So here's the interesting thing. Most theology, in fact, all theology probably, can trace its origins back to what's called astrotheology. In other words, the ancients believed that the universe, the stars, the earth, nature, was the body of God, was the body of God, the anatomy of God. And in order to understand God, they had to understand what was happening in nature, and in this case, the stars. But they also believed that the universe out there was a macrocosm of the consciousness of the human being. So you have this idea of the macrocosm, the big world, the big universe, and the microcosm, the small world, the small universe, being the human. But if it's true in the macro, it's true in the micro. And then they have these laws of correspondence with that. So, for example, the idea of being three days in the tomb, (laughs) this is not an uncommon thing throughout antiquity. This number three, symbolizing death or hiddenness when Jesus is 12 years old, his, he, he stays at the temple, his parents leave and they look for him for three days. Of course, we know Jonah's in the belly of the well for three days. It has to do with the waxing and waning of the moon. So I guess what I'm suggesting with that is that maybe not so much, maybe there was, you know, people like to say, well, the 
the Bible was plagiarized from other cultures and stuff like that. Plagiarism didn't exist back then, by the way. Um, but I know what you mean. But it's, it's quite possible that humanity arrived at a lot of these ideas from the study of the stars. But nevertheless, one of the main themes that runs through all of these tra- tra- traditions is belief in the transcendent, belief in the divine, belief in extra material and paranormal stuff, and interest in consciousness. Plato has some really interesting things to say about consciousness. And immortality, the immortality of the soul. But it all has to do with you. It all has to do with what's in you. It all has to do with being authentically you, being that authentic expression of the divine. So think about it this way. If the core message of the gospel, there is one, is Christ in you, there's an anointing and an anointed inside of you. There is divine potential and power inside of you. There's divine love inside of you, divine goodness, and we're all part of this grand consciousness called God. And you are eternal. You existed from eternity past, and you're going to exist into eternity forward. But the key to all of it, like I said, the core of the Christian message is, you have this treasure in earthen vessels. This is in you. This is your journey. This is not a groupthink thing. This is not come be a part of my club. This is not come think like I think or let me tell you who to be and how to be. It's more like let's discover together our own unique authenticity and expression of the divine and let's celebrate. Let's not be threatened by the differences. Let's celebrate the difference and let's allow for the differences and let's allow each other to be where we're at without this, you know, feeling like you have to change somebody or feeling like you have to change somebody's mind or um, without all this aggression, right, that we have around ideas. Uh, in the former age, the age of Pisces, wars were fought over lands and territories. Communities were built around land and territory. Um, what divided us was borders. In this world, wars are fought over ideas. We gather around even now collectively because of social media and that kind of stuff. We build our communities. We have Facebook groups. We have online communities where we gather together around ideas, right? So it's more important than ever that there be an expression of something that says, you don't have to be like me. You don't have to think like me. Namaste. The divine in me can recognize the divine in you, and I can bow to it. I can yield to it. That there isn't a word of God that we take literally and push on the people but that the word of God is Christ in you. (laughs) 
So then true Christianity, true devotion to the Christ, watch this. True devotion to the Christ, the true Christian, the real Christian, getting down to it right now. Is it the person who is the literalist and worships Jesus and thinks he's going to come back to kick ass at Armageddon and thinks everybody has to conform to his ideas and ways? And he's uniquely something you could never be. And devotion to that has led to what? What kind of fruit? What kind of fruit has it produced? Sure, there have been some good things. But there have been a lot of bad things, too. Just like any human endeavor. In other words, there's nothing special about it. Why does it have this divine stamp of approval? Just because we were told that it did. So where the church got off was they went with the literal historical interpretation rather than the symbolic and mythical interpretation. So what if true Christianity, true devotion to the Christ, is devotion to your higher self, devotion to your deeper self, devotion to the Christ in you that wants to get out of the hope of glory, not not this idea of unquestioned obedience to a Lord out there that's other than you, but the opening up of the divine presence within you. <laughs> the devotion to the Christ in you. Then I think, maybe, if we can look at these stories in the Bible, something that helps shift our consciousness and bring us into these realities and bring us into these universal archaic truths, then I think there's value there. And if by Christian we mean devotion to me because I am the Christ, then I guess I can call myself a Christian. All right. <laughs> I'm going to leave you guys with that. Let me see. Uh, let me look at a few comments. Steve says, the seven seals open, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world revealed, opening us to see we are the flock of God from the beginning, our true identity, Elohim. Ben says, each one of us is Christ in our own right then. Exactly. That's the message. Exactly. Vanessa says, uh, mythology unfolds deep truths laying dormant within us. Yes. Marie McLean says, so much of, quote, church has totally dismissed anything to do with the planets and stars or astrology and its influence on our life. It's often demonized. Yeah, I, I want to come back and address that because there's so much astrotheology um, in the Bible. It's crazy. Anyway, a lot of comments, so I'm going to come back and look at those a little bit later. Hopefully this was helpful to y'all just sharing some thoughts and some ideas uh, that I've been having. And uh, love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for tuning in and watching me. And uh, if you're watching by replay, thank you for watching. Put hashtag replay or something down there so I know you're watching. Um, otherwise, what, whatever time it is for you. Uh, I hope it's great.
Thanks for watching.